Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind to both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, road and operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. What is sufficient? So this has sort of infused itself into my life, into my business, into a way of thinking. I also recognize because I'm in the world, I'm not cloistered in the monastery, I'm not a monk. Um, Just asking the question is maybe one of the biggest steps, even before you get to an answer. What is enough? Just asking the question puts us in a different space. And then it allows us to approach this mindfully and counterculturally. This is the amazing Sean Askinosi, founder and CEO of Askinosi Chocolate. He left a successful career as a criminal defense lawyer to start a bean-to-bar chocolate business. And he had never looked back. Sean came across my radar after Ari from Singerman said, Michael, you need to have a look at what Sean and company is doing over there when it comes to build a business as a force for good. They are incredible. And he was absolutely right. When I started looking into what Sean and the team did, it really blew my mind. I thought this story has to be shared on the show. So I reached out. And as many of these conversations on the show, this is also one that really made me reflect on how I'm leading and developing my life as well as my businesses. Sean shares with us his story from lawyer to becoming chocolate maker and how he found his vocation via chocolate. He also shares how he over many years have worked hard on ensuring that the purpose is translated into the culture and everything they do on a day-to-day basis. We also learn how they are transforming their local but also their chocolate farmers communities in Africa. We dive into the power of radical transparency with all stakeholders and how everyone can have a stake in the outcome as well as the profit. This is what I would say some of the best practice of open book management. So if that's something that's really giving you the edge, you should hang on here. We also talk about the constant focus on growth in business and ask a very simple question. What is enough? We also talk about the future of the food system and the big issues within that system. His learnings as a CEO and founder over the last two years and much, much more. Before you tune in, please sign up for a weekly newsletter, Maverick Talk, which is packed with more Maverick insights, strategies and tools. Find the link in the show notes or visit hospitalitymavericks.com. This is a true masterclass in building a business as a force for good. Grab pen and paper, you are in for an absolutely treat. Enjoy. So today, I think we're going to come out on a really, really interesting journey. We're going to talk with a person that has made a massive shift at some point in their life from going from one profession to a totally different one and actually creating a business with purpose, a business that's do more than just being a business. It makes an impact on the people that's involved, society and the planet, not just locally, but beyond. With that said, I'm very, very excited to have you on the show today, Sean. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Well, I am too. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, and uh, I can remember when we had our first conversation about doing this interview, we, uh, I was stuck on a train, so I had to jump off the train, and, and we had this first conversation, and it, it just evolved about how much passion we both had about, you know, 
doing things maybe in a slightly different way than the norm that we are teach in business school and in business. Uh, and it's, it's about how can you actually unlearn all that. But before we go into that, it could be really good that for people that are listening in, Sean, to, to hear your story, because I think it's, you know, every story unique, but it's really a massive change you made in your career, your story, and how you actually came to build a very famous chocolate business. Well, before I mention the story, I should also say one of the benefits for me is that I didn't have very much to unlearn because I never went to business school. In fact, I took zero business classes in college. And so I've, I've, I've for, for years uh, viewed that as a detriment until you just said that just now. It just reminded me, well, actually, maybe I didn't have a whole lot to unlearn. I didn't understand finance and accounting and advertise. So, so I was kind of a blank slate. But the reason I didn't take any uh, of those kind of classes is because I was really set on going to law school. And so that's what I did. I, I, uh, I was a criminal defense lawyer for 20 years, uh, nearly 20 years before I started this business. I grew to a, a place in my career. I was winning cases and making money and gaining notoriety and reputation um, uh, in the courtroom. And then I just, you know, uh, found that I was not loving this work anymore. Uh, I was passionate about it and called to it for years. And then I wasn't. And so I needed to find some other inspiration, some other passion in my life as a career. And so I spent about five years wandering or wondering and wandering in the wilderness uh, about what in the world am I going to do next? Still trying cases, still practicing law because I, I you know, needed to um, feed the fire. And um, so I landed on chocolate and I've uh, been doing chocolate now for 15 years, and it's bean-to-bar chocolate, and we're a very small company, 22 full-time employees. It's been that way for a long time, and we source the beans directly from farmers in Ecuador, the Amazon, Philippines, Tanzania. I travel to meet them every year, and, and uh, we import those beans into Springfield, Missouri, where our little factory is, and make chocolate and sell it around the world. But what... That journey from, you know, you said I started out as a defense lawyer, which is, uh, it, it's, it's quite, if people know what a defense lawyer makes, it's quite a, a, you know, mentally hard job. And then going to start your own business. Can you talk a bit about that transition? Because I think these transitions people do in life often is where there's a lot of learning and then you end somewhere where you never imagined. Because I can remember when I read your book, you said, I never actually set out to start a chocolate company. It came as part of finding my way out of the wilderness. Yes. I, because I loved what I was doing for so long, I didn't really have any other, I didn't have hobbies really to speak of. And I'm sure many of your listeners can understand you, you love something. It doesn't feel like work and it's fun. And it also happens to provide income, but the transition was was very challenging for me. To, uh, it was challenging in all ways. It was challenging to my health physically. It was challenging to my emotional and mental health. At that time when I was really struggling to find the next thing, I ended up taking antidepressants and uh, seeing a psychologist. And I ended up in the hospital because my doctor thought I was having a heart attack. I wasn't. I didn't even know. It was a panic attack. I didn't even know what that word was back then. Just a kind of a little one. But when you're a lawyer and you tell your doctor that your chest is hurting, you're going to end up in the hospital, at least in America anyway, because of all the malpractice stuff. So poet philosopher John O'Donohue from your neck of the woods over there um, calls this this transition in life. All of these places um, is he calls this kind of an in-between place. You know, it's a threshold and the thresholds of life are uncomfortable for the most part. Why? Because we can't see it. It's not right. You know, it's not, we don't have clarity and we can't make out the objects on the horizon. But if we can allow ourselves the space to contemplate the possible beauty of the threshold, as John O'Donohue describes this, then maybe we can kind of settle in and find our way slowly 
you know, to the other side of this threshold. And that's what happened to me. It just took me a long time. Uh, like I said before, five years. And the more the, when I pursued the answer or p possible solution with greater intensity, it seemed as though it slipped further away from me. So it was kind of paradoxical. The more research I did, the more people I talked to, the more uh, stones I tried to uncover, the further away from me this possible solution became. And so I, I deployed some tools that we can talk about later or now that I didn't know I was <laughs> deploying at the time. I just happened into them. I just sort of lucked into them. And then that kind of led me to chocolate. And, and, and then, you know, you, you just don't, you mentioned yourself chocolate and you're very closely connected to the farms and you travel around the world. But that's also, you know, it'd be really interesting thing for people out there to understand why you're here. What is your purpose? What is your vision? What is your mission? And what are you trying to solve that's bigger than just having a business? One of the things I say a lot, <clears throat> I write about this a lot, is it's not about the chocolate, it's about the chocolate. And what I mean by that is when I say it's not about the chocolate, we work with these very small farmer groups in the four places that I mentioned. Some of them have only 10 or five farmers. Some have maybe the maximum is 40 and we have worked over time to help these farmers become their own exporters so that we are helping them cut out middlemen and middlewomen who are siphoning off money from them. We've helped them open bank accounts. Uh, we profit share with them. We have community development projects and, and nutrition projects in the Philippines and Tanzania. I have a program called Chocolate University that I've had since the beginning 15 years ago to engage kids in the neighborhood, that business can be a force for good in the world, that there's a world beyond Springfield, Missouri, I was involved, I'm, I'm, I'm in, 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 literally this week, I'm in a chocolate university project with nearby high school students, helping kids understand about business and a, a new way of doing business all this week. That's not about the chocolate. It has nothing to do with chocolate. It's about, it's about this idea of mutuality, of kinship, of community, of kindness, of relationship, but when you peel all of the layers back, what it's really about is I'm not trying to change anybody. I'm not trying to change anything. I'm trying to change me. That's the project. That's the big project. And, it, and it's a lifelong project. And I will never fully succeed. Uh, that doesn't happen. And so if I can, if I can just, if I can just work on me, then perhaps these other things will follow. And so that's the <clears throat> feeding, feeding malnourished kids in Tanzania and the Philippines is not about the chocolate. However, I am very competitive and this business is everything about the chocolate. We want to make the best tasting direct trade chocolate in the world. When I started in the United States, there were two or three of us bean to bar chocolate makers that were starting before that there was nobody. There was a company called Scharfenberger that had sold to Hershey in 2005 when we started. And now there's, I don't know, two or 300, you know, chocolate makers in the United States. I don't know how many around the world, over a thousand. Um, but we're still very competitive and we win awards all over the world for our chocolate because I am laser, laser focused on the chocolate being perfect and working with farmers on these cocoa beans um, which has changed over the years since I started in this world, you know, now people, um, consumers of, of this chocolate, they expect perfection in the quality of this product that they're paying a lot of money for and they deserve it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on organic farming practices uh, of our farmers. I'm focused on, um, the fermentation methods that they're using and the roasting process that we use in the factory in order to uh, yield the best um, flavor profile that we can. And uh, I don't want people, I don't, I don't, I don't, I do not want people to buy our chocolate bars because they think this is a cool story. That, that is not sustainable. People will buy my chocolate if it tastes like plywood, you know, once, maybe twice. 
but they're not going to buy it to share with their friends or family or in community or at a party or something. Uh, they just won't do it. So I want people to buy it because they think it tastes good. That's why I want people to buy it because I think it's quality, it's value. Do you think that, you know, all the things you do, all the, the purpose-driven initiatives you're doing, you said for changing yourself, but also that makes your employees care even more about the product because they know the, the success of the product is so important for you to be able to do the other things? I used to think that. Uh, now I'm be beginning to be um, um, divorced from that idea, perhaps. And the reason is because um, I, in the beginning, I, I thought it was important for employees to be equally inspired about the exact same things that I was inspired by. Um, you know, I'm not their daddy and I, I am not paternalistic in that way, I want employees that work for us to be inspired by their own thing and their own lives and their own contribution and, and how they see it. If, if there, and, and, and there are employees out of the 20, you know, 22 who are super motivated and excited about <clears throat> the work that we do in our own hometown or the work that we do with Empowered Girls, which is our after-school program in Tanzania and Enlightened Boys, <clears throat> or the program we, where we provide feminine hygiene products for the girls in Tanzania so they can go to school when it's that time of the month. You know, there are employees who are super into that. But there are other employees who I can tell now they don't care as much about that. They care about roasting cocoa beans. And that's what they care about. And or... They care about just doing a good job during the day and going home and being with their family. And so I'm, I, I, I now, I, I want employees to have their own lives and their own vision and their own mission for their own personal um, uh, time. And so I care more about that than I do about this kind of cult uh, brand. It's super interesting you say that because that's lead into when, you know, you study the work you do. And I know you're very inspired by Singerman's and the work Ari and Paul does around visioning and you call it vocation in your book. So, so how do you do that within the business? Because I guess you have a very clear defined vision for, for where the business are going, but it seems like also, also you, you, you want the employees to create their own if they want to. Yes. And we do that. And so we have a vision and we help employees write their own vision. We, uh, visioning is well, in fact, the high school students that are with us this week from around the state of Missouri, they're, they're part of a Drury university program. We literally are in fusing visioning and them writing their own visions of greatness through the entire week. It's part of everything we do. We do visioning with farmers in Tanzania. We're just getting ready now to facilitate the next round of a 10 year vision of greatness for the farmers in Tanzania. They're almost finished with their first 10 years. I can't believe it. Um, and so what happens is, and if you're looking, if we dial it back to like at the employee level in my chocolate factory, yes, we're trying to pull the boat. All of us are trying to pull the boat in one direction and all, you know, operate the oars in the same time. But what happens is there, there remains sometimes a bit of natural tension between those who are like, well, I want to do this. And the others will say, well, I don't want to do that. I think it should be the other way. And I embrace that because I'm not, I'm looking for, I'm not looking for robots. I'm looking for, um, the, uh, harmony is the best way. I'm, I'm looking for a measure of harmony and that includes a measure of tension and it's not, it can be messy and sometimes it doesn't feel that great, but it's the way it is. And it allows these folks to have autonomy. I, th I, you know, <clears throat> we're, I, I sense that we're at this place where businesses that are doing, doing good 
I'm using air quotes here. This has changed, okay? It's changed from Tom's shoes. I'm not a big Tom's fan. God bless Blake Mikowski. But, but, but things have changed. We are in the midst of changing. I don't even use the word social business. I don't like that. I think it should be removed from business books. And, but this idea that everybody needs to get on board and we're all in this social business to do good. And oh, by the way, you should probably make a little less money if that's okay, employee, because you know we're doing good. We're on a mission here to change the world and you're part of the mission. So it's okay if you can maybe um, sacrifice a little bit more for the mission. I don't think that's good. I also don't think it's good because some of these companies and especially some of the bigger companies have become uh, very adept at spending millions and millions of dollars in advertising money to social wash us consumers into buying their product with fake news about what they say they're doing and they, and they make themselves look awesome on social media and every other place. And so I think we have to be very, very careful as we bring employees along in our enterprises that we're not creating this cult of goodness, so to speak. It's not right. It's not right. And I think that comes down to what kind of culture you build as well. And one of the things I thought was really interesting reading your book, and I know you're a big fan like myself of uh, Bo Furlingham, Jack Stack, uh, you know, the, the great game of business. And I think it's the own, own the shared outcome or share the outcome. Uh, and you had a really interesting KPI for financial success that we can pay our employees a bit more. And I think that's an interesting take on something, you know, both financially in a business, which is very important, especially in the times we're in right now with rising living costs, but also from a culture point of view. Can you talk a bit about that and how you got to that? Because that's not something you invented in, in, in the chocolate business. That's something you took from your previous business as well. We're already practicing extreme transparency. So open book management is, is something that I've been doing now for over 20 years. Um, I started using um, transparency and open books in my law firm. And so the lawyers that worked for me and paralegals and administrative assistants, everybody knew where we were financially. Um, and the idea is to show people where you are, teach them what that means along the way, and then share in the outcome if there is any. And so, you know, I do that to this day. Literally yesterday, spent a lot of time with employees talking about where we are financially. Everybody knows where we are financially in the company. And my idea was, and one of the things that kind of, I think, make us unique in this space is <clears throat> I decided to take it upstream a notch to the supplier in the beginning. So before I even opened the doors to the factory. And what that looks like is that I show the financial information to the farmers and always have. And there were people in the beginning who thought I was crazy. Why would you show very poor farmers big dollars in your financial statements? That's a, that's a mistake. You're going to end up regretting that. No. Well, I've done it for 15 years and I don't regret it. And I do it every time and we do it in their language. So I was in Tanzania last month. It was my first origin trip since the pandemic. And it was my 45th origin trip since I started the business, going to see people, farmers. And when I was there, our financials were in Swahili. And that's just the way we do it. And, and we publish what we pay farmers on our website. It's called a transparency report. It's not a fancy graphics. I didn't hire an ad firm to come up with really cool looking thing. It's a spreadsheet and it shows what we've paid every farmer group every time since I started this thing 15 years ago. And it compares that price, what we've paid the farmers to the world market price, to the fair trade price, which I don't believe in, by the way, we're not fair trade certified. I think fair trade is bad. Fair trade chocolate. I don't know anything about anything else, but I do know about fair trade chocolate. Um, and, but we want to compare it to the price because some people look at that price and then we compare it to the, what's really important is what's called the farm gate price. And that is the metaphorical place 
at the end of the road where farmers, what, what can they get for their crop? And all of that is published. It's all audited. And um, what those numbers show is that over the last 15 years, we've paid farmers 55% more than they would have otherwise received at their farm gate. That's how we use transparency. So it's not just a concept. It's something that we have lived out all these years, all, the whole way. What have you learned by being so transparent? Because I could definitely see what you said that, you know, what are you thinking about? Uh, you can't share that. And even within companies, there'll be people thinking, no, no, the employees should not see the numbers. They should not know how much profit we really make and so on. I, I have been pleasantly surprised by what I've seen with the farmers. I already knew what was going to happen with employees because I've done this for so long. But with the farmers, I was really pleasantly surprised because I can say this, that there have been zero times, zero, where at the end of a profit share meeting, they look at these big numbers and farmers turn to me and say, dang, Sean, why didn't you pay us more in profit share? Or why didn't you pay us, pay us more for cocoa beans? That has happened all of zero times. So, I mean, but that's what you would think would happen. Now, I don't know what they talk about when they leave the meeting, you know, I'm not, but, but so I'm not that naive, but, but I can just tell you it's, it's kind of funny because when I first started doing this, farmers were like, wow, so this is how people do business in America. Cool. They share all the numbers. And I was like, yeah, okay, whatever you need to think. But I mean, I was happy to be a representative in that sense of American business saying, you know, hey, we share the numbers. Now, let me just let me so let me let me add a little footnote to this discussion. And it relates to the exact topic that we were talking about one minute ago. So this idea of open book management is great. But if your purpose as an entrepreneur, founder, owner of a business in sharing the numbers is because you want people to work harder for you and do a better job, et cetera, et cetera, and sacrifice something for it, then that you are making a mistake. It is not right. There's a lot written, a lot written about open book management and how employees will perform better, will, um, and, and, and I really want to make sure I'm being clear on this because I support the idea of open book management and transparency as a management tool, but not as a management tool, I do not support its use as a management tool. If the purpose is to manipulate an employee into doing something that they're not being effectively and properly compensated for. I don't agree with that. And I'm kind of evolving in that, to be honest with you, because I, again, it goes back to this idea of uh, the ethical treatment uh, of our employees. And I will tell you that the, the birth of open book management, as we reflect back on it, I think was for possibly purposes other than what I would currently support today. Um, and, I th and I think also it's interesting what you say there, because I think a lot of people see it as a tool to fix maybe performance or lack of trust that has been, but actually you can't change that if you don't change yourself, as you said at some point. It's about changing me and become a better version of myself. And I think Jim Collins talk about level five leadership, where it's a very reflective form for leadership, that you are not the visionary. You don't have all the solutions, but you create transparency in the organization and thereby over time they will trust you more. But you always be in that limbo of building trust and taking trust as a leader because that's a constant dynamic. Well, and I think it's also important as a leader to model the behavior that you hope to, I mean, do what, I mean, 
you know, like Ari, for instance, I mean, he works at the restaurant. He works at the roadhouse. I've seen there. I mean, I've seen him, you know, filling people's water glasses. That's what he does. So he walks the walk. So when you model that behavior as a leader, I don't care what behavior it is. If you model it and the employees can see it, then there's a, a level of trust that is, that is authentic. It's real because they see the, for, for, for instance, with me, you know, 22 years ago, I co-founded a grief center for children called Lost and Found in Southwest Missouri. I, I co-founded it. And and this is for children and families who've experienced the death of a family member of a parent or sibling. And I've worked a long time in that place and I've worked hard on, I still am very involved. Well, employees can see that, you know, they can see that I'm working with grieving children. And I, I, I myself was a, you know, a grieving child when my dad died, but they can see me doing this, you know, they can see me and what I'm doing when I'm visiting with farmers. When I go on an origin trip, I write all of the employees while I'm there long emails about everything I'm doing, every single thing I'm doing, what I'm feeling, the problems that we're having, all of the messy stuff that's going on. And I don't, you know, give them a pop quiz when I get back to see if they read it or not. But some of the employees are really, really moved by the information that I'm sharing. All of that builds trust. And it's interesting how you are documenting, you're, you're, you're almost like a pilgrimage you're on and you're documenting that to actually inform the employees what's really going on in, in the front line. And I guess that again, in a way for some employees, as you say, you're very honest and say some, that's really what turns them on and really make them understand why you keep, have to keep going. Yes. Yeah, so let, let, let me also just say one thing too. When, when, when I do that, I also think it's important to tell the story upstream. So what I mean by that is if I'm in Tanzania and I'm sending all of this, you know, very detailed information to employees, I also send it to people like Ari, who, 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 yes, he's my friend, but he is my mentor. He is an inspiration. We would, we have had close to 5,000 young people in really remote Tanzania write visions of greatness. We are still doing it to this day. They are coached by a Tanzanian, a woman who lives there. And I would be doing none of that, but for Ari. In fact, the very first visioning session that my daughter, Lauren, and I had in a middle school in remote Tanzania, I didn't want to do it. They wanted us to go talk to this middle school. And I was like, I don't even know. I've only done visioning in Springfield, Missouri. I learned it from Ari. Lauren said, no, dad, let's try it. I said, well, let's call Ari and see what he, I called Ari from Tanzania and, and, and he said, okay, here, Sean, do this. And he, he boiled it all down, all he boiled it down to this. He said, ask the kids if there's ever been a time when they imagined something in the future and it happened the way they imagined it. Oh man, that is perfect. It's simple. It could be translated into Swahili. And, and so we went there and uh, the two uh, girls, the two young girls that were volunteers that day, this was probably uh, eight years ago now. Uh, their names were Upendo and Maria. And um, it's a long story, but then I write about it in the book, but that's how we started visioning. And those two young women, Upendo and Maria, now have turned into, there's 5,000 kids. That's because of Ari. So it's important when I share the story with employees, as I say, to also share the story upstream to mentors and leaders and those who have inspired me. So not just Ari, but others. Because I think while we want to build trust in our employees, I also think it's important to pay respect and, and honor to those people who help us and inspire us in our business today. Yeah, and it's super interesting just to, to, to hatch on on that one, because one of the things I was thinking about asking about as well, because you already said that visioning is a very big, important role for the business, how you work with your stakeholders, with your employees. Is there other things you're doing actually to, you know, get people to become their best version of themselves uh, as long as they spend time with you? I'm thinking about especially here, the employees. 
Not other than what we talked. I mean, we offer them opportunities to be involved in this community. We give them time to be involved in our work. That we, So they're, the, some of the employees are involved this week, not making chocolate, but working with high school kids, you know, um, if that's what they want to do. Um, we, you know, support that. We help them write their own visions if that's what they want to do. Um, so, you know, we're a very small business and we're where the office folks work from home now. And the, so we try to offer opportunities for interactions between, you know, the small group of production team and the office staff. And all of that is kind of evolving, but you know, that's pretty much it. I mean, I'm not as a, again, I, I would emphasize that I'm not trying to, I don't want people to drink the Kool-Aid. I want them to come up with their own Kool-Aid. That's what my book is all about. I want people, I want people to look at me and my daughter, Lauren, and other leaders in the company and say, hey, you know, um, uh, that's inspiring. I, I, I see where I could help. I could roll up my sleeves and help somebody who needs me. But that's not my primary focus. As I said, look, I take this, I take this work. I take this work on myself very seriously not as an ego thing, but as a, I know, I know, um, how imperfect I am. And I am especially motivated to, um, to do this work and to evolve myself in my levels of uh, mutuality and compassion and kindness. And that's, I have to focus on that. And if other people can see that and, you know, think, okay, well, I see myself in that. I could do that. I mean, that's what I do. That's what I've done. That's how people like Ari have treated me. It's uh, it's really interesting also because it really connects with what you talk about a lot in the book and, and in other ways, how you try to inspire people to find their own way. And one of the uh, beliefs you have about the world is that what is enough? That's a, that's a question and a belief you have. And that's, that's and now we're talking about growth because we, in principle, coming back to, you said you're lucky not to be in part of the, the normal business school or the business world. But uh, even though we've been through a pandemic where I actually thought there would be a shift in, in this, I think we are back on that track talking about growth, growth, growth. Uh, and there's a lot of consequences for that financial systems, the planet and so on. But talk a bit about like that, because it was one of the fascinating thing I found in the book where you said, uh, ask yourself when, when is enough? This idea is something that I've learned from the monastery that I'm connected to called Assumption Abbey. It's a Trappist monastery about an hour and a half from my house. I started going there 22 years ago, just on retreat. And then about eight years ago, I became a family brother at this monastery. Um, it's a Benedictine Trappist monastery. I'm not Catholic, but um, so when I'm there, I live with the monks. When I'm there, I follow their prayer schedule. It's a balance of prayer and work. And so for work for them, they make fruitcakes, uh, like a lot of monasteries uh, in Europe, uh, the Trappist brew beer. But uh, some make cheese. Um, um, and one of the things that is striking to me is when you ask any monastery around the world that's governed by the rule of Benedict, which has, you know, been in existence now for, you know, 1500 years. Um, when you ask them, well, how, how many fruitcakes do you make? They say, we make enough. Well, what's enough? Well, enough is, um, enough is what we need to survive. It's enough for our community. It's enough for, you know, to pay the electric bill and to feed ourselves. And so I recognize that there is a sort of um, luxury in this level of community that is isolated and completely dependent on each other. But it's what I call and others have called the, the sufficiency economy which is what is sufficient. So this has sort of infused itself into my life 
and into my business, into a way of thinking. And I also recognize because I'm in the world, I'm not cloistered in the monastery. I'm not a monk, um, but but I can learn and I can pull threads from that experience into my own life and business. And the main way I think that w- that we can do that, or I can do it, recognizing that, again, we're in the world, is by realizing that the question, just asking the question is maybe part of the, one of the biggest steps, even before you get to an answer, sitting around a room or a table, or even just with yourself or writing in a journal, what is enough? Just asking the question puts a, puts us in a mindset that is different from, as you say, you know, the kind of traditional business, uh, really not just business, but life, you know, just life. And, And it's, it's, it just puts us in a different space. And so when we say how much is enough, it's going to be different when we're in our 20s than when we're in our 60s. That's okay. And, you know, I think it can apply to everything. You know, how much is enough Facebook followers? How much is enough Instagram people? You know, what is enough sales? What's enough? And so, you know, and then what that allows is it allows us to approach this mindfully and counterculturally. And I think we're in a place in the world where this is happening. We are, you, you, we talked about this before you hit record. I mean, you and me, we think, we think alike and, and we're, we, we, we've never met each other in person, you know, but we, I know we think alike and you and I, we're part of a bigger movement that's happening on this planet that is currently you know, um, I would say countercultural. Eventually, it won't be countercultural. It won't be a counter trend. This idea of what is enough it relates to another chapter in my book in in the book that I wrote about reverse scale. It kind of those kind of go together. Which is why do we have to grow just because the chamber of commerce tells us, or are the, the the investors want a certain rate of return, or you know, why we need to challenge that notion of just grow, grow, grow at all cost. And so if we can work together and have this network of people like you and I and others and all these people on the planet that are thinking like we are, well, then we'll be part of something. We'll be part of something. And I, I think it's happening. It's happening. Yeah. Do you also think it's the, uh, the consequences of growth people are starting to, to, to see slowly that you know consumerism as we call that paradigm so many downstream consequences both physical um, emotional spiritual starting with the environment um, and um, we we are we are part of this um, idea that we can, you know, break this cycle imperfectly, you know, um, and just be part of this mindful movement of um, purchasing, consuming, using, and, you know, again, not being perfect about it, just coming along together, having compassion for each other as we approach this idea that, um there's more to life than money and consumption. And you talked about, you know, going downstream. And I'm thinking about uh, your part, your business is also part of the food system. Um, what is your thinking around that? Is there like, and there's lots of issues in, in the food system. What would you like to see be solved in a way in that? Because there is, in my belief, some things we can do to make a better food system quite quickly if we remove the... Uh, extreme focusing on growth and profitability in everything we do? Well, you asked me, so here's my answer. I don't know a lot about a lot, but one thing I do have a fairly decent understanding of is my own space. So the cocoa world. I can't speak a lot about food systems in other spaces because I don't know about it. I wouldn't be speaking authentically. But I do know about what's happening in cocoa production, cocoa harvesting around the world. 
And the one thing that I would like to fix is the use of enslaved children in West Africa. And um, the biggest chocolate makers in the world, Barry Calibo, Nestle, Mondelez, Mars, Hershey's, um, all of them are admittedly, they admit that there are children in the supply chain um, who shouldn't be there. Uh, the University of Chicago, in cooperation with the Department of Labor in the United States, estimate, and there's no dispute about this, that there are currently 1.58 million, 1.58 million children in the supply chain in Ghana and Ivory Coast in cocoa. And so I have been part of, along with other chocolate makers, um, litigation against these companies that I just mentioned in the, in, in the form of what in the United States is called an amicus brief or a friend of the court in the United States Supreme Court. Now, unfortunately, in June of last year, our U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of Nestle against um, eight former enslaved children in West Africa who became plaintiffs. And the reason the Supreme Court, it's very complicated, but the reason that they um, ruled in favor of Nestle and others is because they said that American courts didn't have jurisdiction in Ghana and Ivory Coast under the statute that was deployed, the American statute called the Alien Tort Statute, uh, very, very old um, statute. But the, the Supreme Court said, no, there's not jurisdiction technically under that statute, um, essentially giving license to using enslaved children to make cheap ass chocolate and um, bring it into the United States. So there are multiple tentacles of litigation in the United States against some of these companies to stop them from this practice. And I'm as much a part of that as I can be <clears throat> as a small company and trying to, you know, raise this flag uh, when I have the opportunity, like, thank, thank you for asking this question, but this is important and this is really important. And interestingly, I will, and I'll, I'll kind of conclude my soapbox with this part, which is another, um, university has studied the economics of this and found that there is a relationship between the price that companies pay farmers and the use of enslaved children and children in what's called the worst forms of child labor on these farms. Therefore, this study concluded that a very nominal increase in price, I'm talking 2%, 3% increase in price paid to farmers, would dramatically reduce the use of child labor. And they found that 11%, that's not a lot, an 11% premium would eliminate it. Now, when you look at that in conjunction with the fact that when adjusted for inflation, the price of cocoa has remained unchanged in the last 35 years. It's not changed. Why? Because eight companies control the whole damn thing. And so we need to do something about it. And the something is we need to pay farmers more money directly. That's what needs to happen. And it's not happening And I'm including Tony's Chocolate Only. Everybody thinks that they're, they use Barry Calibo or they did until three months ago, to make their chocolate. Barry Calibo is the biggest chocolate maker in the world, and they admit that they use child slaves. You can go to their annual report right now, and they, they say you know they're tr doing what they can to eliminate the worst forms of child labor in their supply chain, and they, they are having trouble, so they say. But they say that the fact that they admit that they're being used should not be held against them because they're trying to do what they can to identify and eliminate it. This is a, it's a, this is a, a very, very complicated problem that can be solved, I think, in many ways, simply just by paying people more money. Uh, it's, it's absolutely, you know, shocking what you're saying, and we will not edit this out. Uh, I can promise you that. But what I think is really interesting is that that's actually a, a reasonable, simple to solution to 80% of the problem, which is an increase of the profit that the farmer get because that means he can run his business in a different way because I guess the farmer deeply down is a human being that knows that this is not the right thing to do. So if I could afford it, I wouldn't do it. You know, there are companies, well, Hershey, for example, uh, the governments of Ghana and Ivory Coast um, heavily regulate the price of cocoa. Ostensibly, they say and have for, you know, um, a few decades. They say in favor, you know, to, of the farmer, 
But I don't really buy that. I think this government regulation is wrought with corruption and um, money. Uh, that and and when Hershey was forced into paying what's called a living income differential two years ago, um, that the government of Ghana and Ivory Coast tried to um, put on these companies to pay the farmers what's called a lid, living income differential. Hershey resisted. They said, we're not doing it. We're talking a modicum amount of money. Um, and they did, they, they ultimately ended up having to pay it, but they didn't care. They didn't, I mean, it was, you know, top line news and they didn't care. They didn't care how it looked. And the reason they didn't care how it looked is because they view these challenges. These big companies view these challenges against them as a challenge to their bottom line and the challenge to shareholder value. This is all about shareholder value, all of it. So these huge multinational companies that are um, taking advantage of children and enslaved people who, by the way, let me just also say, most farmers in Ghana and Ivory Coast, and by the way, most all of cocoa farmers are in those two countries around the world. So two thirds of the cocoa farmers um, in the world are located in those two countries. And they are subsisting on less than $1.25 a day, which the United Nations would define as extreme poverty. So what's happening? What, what, what is, what is, what is, this is, this is a shining example of the measure of inequality of humanity that we are dealing with. And, and it's not just chocolate. Okay. It's happening in other industries and it's happening in food and it's happening in hospitality. And we look, I don't have the answer to this that I'm getting ready to say this, this idea, but we, 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 we must find a way to reverse the trend of inequality. And when you, when you have, when you have a farmer making a, you know, a dollar 20 a day struggling in the heat with a machete. And then you have, you know, these companies that have, you know, corporate jets flying all over the place to board meetings and, and, you know, shareholder profitability. And it's just, it's wrong. And we have to, I'm, I'm not, look, I'm not against profit. I'm not against profit. I'm not against business. This is why you said it. I think you're, you're the one who said this before we hit, hit record. Business is the, one of the few bastions of hope to solve these problems. It isn't government. It's not the United States Supreme Court, by the way. And it's not politics. It's business. And the people who are going to do it in business are the young people. I am so enthused and optimistic about what's happening in this generation now happening, the Gen Z generation and the millennials of, of, the, of, of the care and concern and compassion that they have for each other and for this world. And I believe that they will be the ones who really usher in this opportunity for business to change the world for the better. Yeah, I totally agree with that because also I think they, even if they are in the developed world, feel the inequality for, for, for many, many, many reasons. Getting on, example, housing ladder, which is not a problem you think about if you th talk about West Africa, but there's, there is this tension. I think we had Matt Lederhausen on, on the, the podcast as well. One of his biggest concern was actually, you know, this, you know, us and them feeling there is in society and the consequences of that if we keep on moving down that road and if we don't change our way and our approach and business is the solution he said exactly the same as you well what the i mean the people who serve the food in the restaurants in the cities around the world can't afford to live in the cities that they work in pick a just pick a city your city london 
if you're at the nicest restaurant in London or one of the nicer restaurants in London, I guarantee you the people who are serving you your food are not living near the restaurant. Probably. I mean, it's not in the United States anyway. They're definitely traveling. Yeah, yeah. Say, I mean, it's not happening in Austin. It's not happening in San Francisco. It's not happening in Nashville. Just pick, just pick it. It's, and it's. <laughs> I was at a wedding this weekend, um, in Texas, and the venue was over the top. I mean, it was a beautiful hotel. It was a, a, a unique hotel, but the rooms. The cheapest room was a thousand dollars a night. Well, I mean, I didn't, I couldn't stay there, but I was able to see it and I was able to see in the rooms and I was like, holy crap. You know, I mean, what, (laughs) it was nice, but it wasn't that nice. It wasn't a thousand dollars a night. Nice. I mean, and I'm, I'm just, I, I'm sure there are places that are worth a thousand dollars a night. I know there are. I'm, I'm, I'm certain of it. This wasn't one of them. And this was actually a chain, you know? And so I, I'm, I'm troubled by this. I'm troubled by, you know, that things going in up. I'm, I'm troubled by, you know, poverty going one way and the accumulation of wealth going in the other. I want people to be wealthy. I believe in capitalism. I believe in free enterprise. I just think that we have a lot of work to do to rein it in. And we, and I'm optimistic that we will. I'm optimistic we, we will. And I think one of the ways that we're going to do this is by information. And the ease of information for the consumer, for you and me and others, Going to going shopping, you know, in a Whole Foods store, or you know, uh, going to Neil's yard to buy some cheese, or or wherever we, we, we you know, with our phones, we're going to have access to levels of information that right now we have access to, but it's really hard to get, you know, and it's hard to see. And so I believe that blockchain and other things will make its way into everyday use for people who are in a restaurant or in a hotel. And it will be very easy for us to have customized information quickly about what we care about. And I think that's going to change consumption and change purchasing behaviors around the world. Uh, that's super interesting, Sean. That actually led me I have a couple more questions before we wrap up here. But um, what is like your learning over? You know, we say we are in this big shift as a as a society. The global world is in a big shift right now. But what has been your like? You know, most profound learning over the last two years, and 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 what has it done to you? The last two years, honestly, Michael, have been a real challenge for me personally. I've not been um, private about this, so it's. Um, I've, I have, um, been in weekly therapy or teaching, you know, I, I'm a prayerful person. I have, uh, you know, you heard me talk about my association with the monastery. Um, I, I, over many years have had, a a, a practice for myself and, um, I have found the last two and a half years to be uh, very challenging. And so the big learning for me is, in a way, um, I've experienced what my faith tradition would call a dark night of the soul. It's been very challenging. I'm not completely out of it yet. Um, I don't pray to be out of it. Um, uh, And we were talking about John O'Donohue earlier. uh, And sometimes the threshold can be very uncomfortable because we don't see with clarity in the fog and darkness. And that's where I have been. And my teacher slash therapist has been one to help me um, with patience and to help me not panic in that space that can be, as I said, it can be a space of beauty, that threshold. And so the learning for me has been a measure of self-awareness that I never knew possible. It It hurts sometimes but I didn't know that it was capable. And so in that self-awareness, um, I have found beauty in s- some of the suffering and I have a new, um, 
granddaughter. Her name is Goldie. She'll be two in three weeks. So we live in Austin part-time. That's where she is. And my daughter, Lauren, who works remotely, she's our chief marketing officer and her husband. And um, so that has been, uh, Goldie has been this sort of beacon of light uh, for me. And um, this is where I am, you know, it's where I am emotionally and spiritually. And um, so I haven't, to your question, I haven't learned in the past tense yet, but I'm learning. I'm learning right now. And it's interesting. And thank you for being so honest, because I think we can all relate to that. We all going through some kind of threshold, uh, being trapped and tired, frustrated, fighting with the soul. Um, definitely many business owners I met, it's like that, the fog, the clarity that you normally have and the determined and, the, and you don't have the same energy as well, not only because maybe you've been hit by COVID and recovered from that. I think it's just that you are mentally, you had never ever processed so many decisions about yourself and your business and other people's well-being because you were responsible for a lot of people, not only your employees, but also all the stakeholders as you run a business. Um, so I think, I, think, I think that was really, 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 really good reflection there, Sean. Thank you for sharing that. Um, one of the questions I always ask here on the show, which is um, what what advice, your number top advice to leaders also listening in to this and thinking, what can I do as the, what is the one thing I can do to build a business that's a force for good? I want to be part of that movement. I want to make a difference. I ask people this counterintuitive question. And this only speaks to a certain subset, but I, I ask people to think about the heartbreak in their life and to think about the place of sorrow. Um, Khalil Gibran said that our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And so I ask people and entrepreneurs to think about a place of heartbreak in their life. And can they find someone who needs them that um, maybe needs them in a way that they needed someone? Um, so is there a, is there a way for them to intersect with that and find the emotional space to sort of roll up their sleeves and help somebody who needs them? <clears throat> this is a place of kind of mystery and magic, and, um, it allows entrepreneurs who are inspired paradoxically by this connection of mutuality with someone else. It allows them to reduce the fear that they have of going forward uh, in their business that is in a place of service. It allows them, I think, courage. Because so many business people I meet say, hey, Sean, man, hey, that's some cool stuff. I, I want to do that. I want to do, but I'm, I, need to, I need to get a little more... Um, you know, capital in the bank before I do this thing that you're doing. I, it's really cool. I'm going to wait until I get a few more employees and then I can, well, I understand that. But I think that that fear, which is what that is, that fear will be diminished, not removed, but, or, but, and I think the courage will be enhanced if there's a place where they can feel this connection and mutuality and kinship with someone else that needs them. Uh, because what happens when you do that is the roles reverse if you're ready for it. So the teacher becomes the student. The person healing becomes healed. And these, these roles just completely flip. And when that happens, you have courage to say, you know what? I don't care how much money I have in the bank. We're going to do this one thing for our neighbor down the street over here from our business or across. We're just going to do it. It's just going to be part of who we are. We're just going to do it. That's what I, that's a very long answer to your question, but that's what I encourage for entrepreneurs thinking about this space. That's a, that's a super good advice. And as again, it starts with you as you start said in the beginning, it's about 
how I can become better, how I can change into the person I want to become to do the things I want to become. And therefore you need to take risk and there's not going to be a perfect time. You need to get started like, like any other things in, in, in business. Uh, is there one question you wish I've asked you, uh, Sean, uh, that I didn't ask you and what would you have answered? Well, um, I cheated because I already talked about Goldie um, and I would have, uh, so I already, I already, I already found a way to weave Goldie into, <laughs> into the podcast. And, um, so, uh, yeah, that would have, that, that would have been what I would have wanted to talk about because, um, it's a very important thing to me. And it teaches me that, um, this idea teaches me this idea of being, you know, present for Goldie as a, as a uh, grandpa, uh, she calls me Ta, T-A, Ta, but, um, I, I, um, it's, it's, it's teaching me that um, if I'm quiet enough, if I have enough silence, if I have enough solitude, and if I have enough just presence of moment, that I can find the divine in anything and everything. And um, I'm thankful to her and who sent her to this planet um, for that. Yeah, and it is so funny because I have young children myself and there's so much you can learn from about just observing them and, and be silent. And uh, and the things that you are automatic, if, even if you don't journal, you will start reflecting on something. If you really stop up and observe them, we all, we're all guilty of sometimes being in our own world. And we sometimes if we step out of that, that's where the real transformation happens. That, that that was a great great little reflection there again to end on sean so thank you so much for for coming and the last thing if people want to know more of course the website we're going to put it all in the show notes you know where can people find out more about what you guys do where to connect with you if they want to i guess you're open to for for questions if anybody thought oh, I, I want to ask sean a question about what he's doing there i'm really inspired i want to i want to learn some more well, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I'm easy to find, Sean Askinosi, and um, and uh, our website is askinosi.com, and we're on all the social media channels as a company. And uh, my email address that people can email a question is hello at seanaskinosi.com. You can put that up there, and um, happy to an answer to answer a question that anyone might have, and grateful for the conversation today. Thank you so much, Sean. I'm sending you and uh, the team and everyone that's involved uh, with you and what you do, uh, you know, power and energy for, 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 for the times ahead. Thank you. Thank you. I hope to have coffee with you one day at Monmouth Coffee. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. That would be great. We'll make it happen, Sean. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sean, for your great insight into how to build a purpose-driven business and how to create radical transparency as well ensure everyone has a stake in the outcome now ask yourself how can we create more transparency on all levels of our businesses and give everyone a stake in the outcome if you want to learn more about how to build a business as a force for good tune in to episode number 134 with david lockwood md of neil's yard dairy on having a 10-year plan talking transparency and open book management a big thank you to Biz Simply for supporting us, bringing great insights and strategies and tools to help leaders to become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or via their social at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at advice at bizsimply.com. Thank you to Fina Charlson, the show producer and editor from the Podcast Collective. I really appreciate that you're listening in. So, if you enjoyed today's conversation, please share, rate, review, or subscribe to one of our channels, which all can be done via the website, hospitalitymavericks.com. If you have any ideas and feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. Tune in next time for another interview. And in the meantime, find out more about us and subscribe to the weekly newsletter, Maverick Talk, via hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tinkster. And you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be Maverick.